welcome back, Ag Watchers, to another episode. Uh, we've got another guest on today. Well, as per usual, we've always got guests on. Uh, we've got uh, Richard Reardon, a member for Polworth. Richard, welcome to Ag Watchers. Uh, thanks for thanks for taking the time out today. Uh, the purpose of today's talk was to really talk about the impact of COVID, a subject that we haven't we've tried to avoid for uh, for most of the time. But today we have got record numbers again in in Victoria, fourteen hundred odd cases. Richard, can you do us a bit of give us a bit of an intro? Who who are you? Where are you from? You know, a lot of our listeners from from all parts of Australia and overseas. Yeah, well, good. Yeah, th- thanks, thanks, Andrew. I'm the uh, I'm the newly minted um, local government and resources shadow minister here in Victoria, um, and I represent the wonderful electorate of Polworth, which, for those listeners that don't know, uh, has its, its has as its southern boundary the entire Great Ocean Road, and I and I sit exactly between Warrnambool, Geelong, and Ballarat, and all the area in between. So it's a very beautiful part of Australia. Um, it's very diverse in terms of its uh, contribution to regional Australia. Out of my electorate, uh, we basically supplying 30-odd percent of Australia's dairy, 30-odd percent of Australia's construction timber, processed construction timber. Um, we're a big producer of prime lambs and um, and processing it at the plant in Colac and, and across a bit closer at Warrnambool, uh, further away at Warrnambool. Um, you know, it's a very productive area, not to mention the, the, the famous Western District um, plains where you've got all those cereal crops and crops that, that grow beautifully. And this year, aren't they just looking stunning? If the frost stays away, if there's clouds there, I don't think frost will be a big problem, hopefully. But um, it's, a, it's a very pretty part of the world. And I guess for a Member of Parliament, what makes it um, unique um, is that some of my colleagues and uh, the problem with Australia with with the concentration of people in Melbourne and Sydney, you get all these members of parliament that look after about two square kilometres, 55 apartment buildings, and have uh, one tree in a park that everyone jumps up and down about. Whereas a good electorate like mine, I'm dealing with manufacturing, exports, imports, production, agriculture, tourism, the whole lot. So it gives you, and increasingly the whole renewable energy arguments, of course, are right across an area like mine. So it's a very diverse area and it equips a Member of Parliament have a pretty good bird's eye view of what's going on in the economy, and very appropriate for your topic on COVID today. And and you're obviously you're. We spoke earlier on this afternoon. You were you were in Melbourne, uh, in in Melbourne just now. You yep. were you, you were struggling to get somewhere to uh, to get a bite to eat. Yeah. Can I tell you the average small dicky country town in anywhere in Victoria only needs either a crappy truck stop takeaway. Or, or a half manky pub with the publican that only opens when they feel like it will have more traffic, more people, and more places to eat than what the Melbourne CBD has at the moment. I had to walk two blocks and found a Nando's chicken in the middle of the afternoon. That was it. Every there, there are more for lease than and for sale signs than a country town in regional Victoria in the mid seventies. It's just a bomb site down here. That's um that's what uh, Richard Andrew and I haven't been into Melbourne now for I guess since March or something ridiculous. Um, yeah, and we, exactly. it was only the one the one time this year we've been in and we we noted back then the amount of places that were vacant or looking like they were on their last legs and um, it reminds me back of you know I think it was Mad the Max. Late, late 80s or <laughs> late 80s, uh, you know, there was a time there where, where there was this donut effect where Melbourne wasn't very popular to even live in or, you know, everyone was out in the suburbs and, and it feels like it's going back to those days when yeah. you go 
Well, I went, I, I was at uni here before seven day a week trading, before it started. And, you know, I used to drop my mates off at Melbourne Uni. I was out at Monash. You drop them down on a Sunday night on your way back for uni for the week. And you could do laps around the streets of Melbourne and fire cannons and you'd never hit anyone. It was dead as a doornail. There were no cafes, no restaurants. And, you know, for the last 30 years, we've gotten very used to Melbourne being this 24-hour city, vibrant, stuff on, always something to look, particularly when you're from the country, you come down, you love the vibe. I tell you what, it is dystopian. It's like some weird movie. I mean, I have seriously got more chance of being run over in any country town in Australia before I'd get run over here in Melbourne. I haven't used traffic lights for months down here. Seriously, you just walk you just walk across anywhere. There's no cars. Uh, it's just the tram, and they're pretty bloody obvious. You'd have to, you deserve to get hit if you got hit by one of them. Um, it, it, there's just nothing happening. It, it's criminal, and I don't, you know, it's 25% of the Victorian economy, the CBD. Um, it's, a, it's a very big driver of the Victorian economy. And I was just looking around, and there are places that have been in business for years. You walk out the front door of Maya down here, if for those that have been in the Burke Street Mall, it's the pre, premier precinct. You walk out, well, if, if the doors were open and you walked out the front doors of Maya, there's nothing on the other side of the road. There, there's one building being demolished and the rest are all got police signs. Like, Jesus, those towns. So, 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 so going back to your your constituents in in Polworth, you you get around. You you obviously uh, you get the opportunity to get back into the uh, the home shire, so to speak. What what's the reaction been there? Because you know, like Matt and I both live in regional Victoria. We're actually on either side of of your uh, of your district, uh, but we're still obviously getting impacted by those restrictions. Uh, yeah. there, there is still a lot of you know, whilst we whilst we don't have the same restrictions as Melbourne, we're not quite as locked down. There is still impacts on on the economy, major impacts. Yeah, yeah there is. The, look, the biggest um, damage happening out in the region at the moment is to tourism and hospitality, without a doubt. And you know, taking the Great Ocean Road, it's that whole region has more visitors than the Great Barrier Reef and Uluru combined. It's a very, very reliant. There's a lot of good pubs, a lot of good restaurants, cafes, a lot of tourism visitor businesses and, you know, all those types of things. Well, they're all just dead and buried at the moment. They can't do a thing. Um, and like a lot of other industries in regional Victoria, they were having labour shortages to start with. I mean, the labour shortage across regional Victoria and probably Australia more generally is absolutely chronic with closed borders. So COVID's, COVID's got a big problem there with, with labour and it's right across. You've got those tourism and hospitality businesses that really have grown to make living in re regional Australia very attractive, more and more attractive over recent times. And I think you blokes would have seen, you know, communities slowly start to grow and reform themselves. And it's often built around the fact that there's a bit more life and activity in the hospitality and tourism sector in a community. So that's really been for six. But the strange irony that we have in the country compared to here down in the city when you come down here is that farmers are never very good at listening to authority at the best of times. And so, um, you know, my son's a diesel mechanic at one of the local farm machinery places. Well, finest to God, like he's 24 or five, has no idea about COVID. I don't think he's worn a mask. He's just out doing the same old, same old. He gets paid every week. Life's pretty good. Doesn't know much different. The only thing is you can't go on a holiday to Queensland and um, or, or as a lot of people do, have been doing going to Bali or something. So there's a whole raft of people in country Victoria um, who are seeing the best seasons, the most profit they've ever seen on their enterprise. They can't spend it anywhere. 
The poor, wife, poor wives can't go on holidays or drag the husband away and go somewhere nice to, as a reward. So there's all that sort of stuff happening. And our country towns, as a consequence of, you know, that big bulk of, of agriculture still ticking along, haven't suffered too as much unless you're really in that hospitality and tourism. And there's other funny little niche ones like the, in Colac where I'm based, the, the dry cleaner, for example, a really great a little service, a niche service in a country town. But, you know, he, he, survived, he, he makes his profit out of race meetings, um, yeah. end-of-year football, uh, football balls, um, end-of-year deb uh, things and people's funerals, right? And they're all the things we haven't had for two years. So, so like he said, I haven't seen a suit. I, I, unless I take a jacket into him, there's absolutely no one else um, going in to get a suit dry cleaned at the moment. So there's little funny stories, not funny, but, you know, little particular things like that in regional. But otherwise... You're selling farm machinery, Toyota Prados, um, flat screen TVs. Um, and, you know, another winner is the, the Buller Ice Cream Factory in Colac is another example. Um, they're not selling too much to the hospitality industry, but everyone's sitting at home watching Netflix and gorging on tubs of ice cream. So that, that's, that's, that's why Mark looks a bit more hefty. A bit more round. Yeah, that's right. Richard, I'm, um, I'm actually just based outside your electorate. I think my local area is Bunenyong, so... For my sins, I've got a different member of parliament <laughs> representing me, um, which I think you know who that would be, but we won't mention her name. Um, but um, so I'm, I'm, I'm out here, and actually we moved out here about a decade ago, and since then, well, when we did it, you know, moving to the regions, some of the city folk were saying, oh, you're a bit mad, thought we were crazy. But now in the last year or so, we've seen, I've, I know personally, four different families that have come and lived in this regional area. Um, so even yeah, what's happening in Melbourne is kind of pushing people out to a degree to the regions. Um, is that, in your mind, is that a good thing for the regions or are we finding there's also issues, you know, around housing or around services now that we're getting people coming? And are you seeing that in your area as well? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Matt, look, that's, uh, that was something I should have added in my little summary. Absolutely. Real estate and housing has just gone off the charts. You know, we're now getting million-dollar houses in towns that the best you can before was about 550 or 600 and that's certainly across my region you put it you know i think they're i think the local agents in southwest victoria are talking five or six days max for a house to sell which is you know unheard of traditionally in the country if you wanted to move out you've got to plan about two years ahead and hope to god you can sell your house in 18 months um so that's been a massive change but you know for for people in my business you know the politics game um because we haven't seen this thrust back to the regions and country life, um, a lot of the planning um, mechanisms just aren't fit for purpose. So we're seeing, you know, a country town that just wants to open up another 50 house blocks or something to, you know, help keep prices down and, and get things moving in town. There's two things this government's done lately, and one is they bought in a, a subdivision tax, which basically for the Usually, and that's the other thing about country towns is you've usually got an old retired farmer couple own the land. You know, they're not particularly sophisticated investors. They're just sitting there as a bit of a super fund and they'll cash it in. And now they go to, at the moment, if you go and see a block of land that you probably get a million bucks for now, the government's taking half of it in tax. I mean, it's a massive new tax that only kicked in in, in June. Now, that's really kicking um, it in the guts around country towns because the, the tax was aimed at the big, big, you know, 1,000, 2,000 block subdivisions in Melbourne. It wasn't intended to impede country towns. Well, that's a big issue at the moment. 
And the second one is that it's taking two and three years to rezone a block of land on the edge of a country town that absolutely no one disagrees with. I mean, we need to fast track that and that would certainly help. Um, and then uh, if we could ultimately get some of our country roads fixed up, which you know people like me bang on about all the time and your, your Bunningong area, it's not much better either from memory. Um, you know, they're the sorts of things that just are the icing on the cake to, to making uh, regional living attractive. And the big advantage long term, I think, with what COVID, if we can look at an upside of COVID, is all the people you were talking about that have made that conscious move to the country. They've learned that they can keep their quite interesting jobs and career, highly higher paid jobs and careers, telecommute and Zoom commute. Um, but they're also, once they've gotten to the swing of country living, they're looking at other job opportunities locally. And so a lot of our key production places and, and operations right across regional Victoria, whether it would be Lubber Duck up in the north or, you know, Midfield Meats or whoever is around the countryside has got a big operation, they're starting to have an opportunity to pick up some extra talented staff and opportunities that may not have been there once. I actually think there's some really good opportunities on the way for these city folk who move to the countryside, they've just been living in Fitzroy or Turak or I don't know, whatever. I don't, I don't know Melbourne that well, but city, city places, you know, with small apartments moving into the countryside, suddenly they've got, you know, a cup, a big block. I think there's a, still think there's a huge industry of for servicing those city folk that move to the country who don't have the time or the ability to do the gardening. Yep. or don't even realise that they've got to get their uh, you know, septic tank done or, or whatnot, <laughs> you know, or have, ne- have never cleaned a gutter in, in their lives. Yes. So I think, and, and I think we actually saw, saw that in places like the UK where folks from London would move to you know, the countryside and then they would end up not realising the amount of work that it actually takes yes. to, to run a country house because it's, you know, it's more than just you can't just go and sit in your garden and have a beer. You've actually got to, you know, someone's spend, got to do it. <laughs> you've got to spend five hours, you know, doing the hedges and, and weeding, you know, and, and whatnot. Another interesting opportunity, I think it it uh, may may lead to that, which I'd love to see in my part of the world, which has had a lot of farm consolidation, as most areas have, but down in the southwest of Victoria, of course, the farms were even smaller than they were up up to the north. But you know, there's a lot of empty farmhouses and things around still that. Um, various plans are getting back to the planning provisions in this in this state need to be improved. I mean, there's a great opportunity for farmers to, you know, if they've got a, a you know, a house that needs a bit of luck, bit of TLC and love, but otherwise sitting abandoned, if, if we were more flexible in our planning and subdivision laws that didn't work against the farmers, but would be a great opportunity to unlock now because you get something you wouldn't have given a tuppence for that's, a couple of years ago, you get a decent price for it at the moment. That's a great segue, Richard, because uh, that's an extra plug for uh, my mother and father's uh, stables. They've converted into a Airbnb <laughs> in the southwest of Scotland. If you're, uh, if we ever, if we ever get to travel overseas, it's available that's... on Airbnb. I'll, uh, I'll send you a link if you want it, any listeners. But but that actually does make a good point as well. When I'm, I'm obviously I'm plugging my my, my mother's mother and I'm sure it's a business. lovely set of stables. Beautiful, you know, beautiful. Matt's well, it was good enough for Jesus, Richard. Uh, Richard is good enough for bloody uh, anyone else to go and have some time. It, yes, as long as there's not too many donkeys next door, that'll be fine. Only when Matt's living there. Uh, but yeah. when uh, what one of the things that I was thinking about as well is like if you go to a place like Dalesford, yeah, over the last yeah. ten years, you go there on a Saturday or a Sunday, 
A, the traffic is terrible, but it's also heaving with people. But if you go there on a, on a Wednesday, it's dead as a doornail because of the fact that there's so many Airbnbs and so many people who aren't actually living there. Is that a concern that you have this sort of floating population in, 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 in a lot of your constituency? Yeah. When, you know, if people are airbnb a lot more or they're, you know. Yes, well. And you've got empty, empty houses that are empty for, you know, Monday to Friday and. Yeah. So, so what we're what we're talking about is this dilemma we have with Melbourne people, and uh, I hate calling them Melbourne people. My my uh, city colleagues get very angry with me as if they're sort of some contaminated just um, water people. Flow. But yeah, it's a really interesting dilemma you raise. So we 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 mentioned earlier about the labour shortage. Labour shortage is, is exacerbated when people can't move to an area because there's no houses. And what we've seen, uh, Dalesford's a good example, but certainly in my electorate, we've got all the Great Ocean Road, we've got the Angle City, the Lawns, Apollo Bays, Port Campbell, uh, very, very popular spots. And for the average out-of-towner, they go down there on the long weekend or school holiday time, and they think, oh, my God, this place is amazing. There's thousands of people at restaurants brimming with people. What a fabulous spot to live. They go back there on a Wednesday in May, and there's literally no one there. So the problem we've had, though, is... In these areas, the Dalesfords, the Great Ocean Road, and we saw it, it was this yesterday um, round at Portland, is that we've we've sort of got this view that development is bad, all development equals bad, and we can't have world-class accommodation and development and look after the environment and maintain um, townships. And I think we have to look at what they do in Europe much better than us is accept the reality that people want to come and you've got to get the balance right between preserving that town's character, whatever that character is, whether it's fishing village or timber town or artist community, whatever. But we can have both. And when we don't have both, the only other option people have is Airbnb. So, for example, if I talk to any hotel owner or motel owner across my region, they have been unable to develop their hotel business and instead they buy houses in the community, they rent for Airbnb. And why... Do they not make that house available to someone who wants to live and work in the community? Because that person can only pay $300 a week. These guys get three and $400 a night for a house. They only have to rent it one night a week and they're making more money than if it had a permanent in it. So it's a dilemma we've got in the community. It's an interesting conversation because I've had a couple of public forums now in Anglesey and Apollo Bay where, you know, they are really hurting um, because of the lack of workers but I say, well, you've got to have that debate in your town. You, you've knocked back hotel development after hotel development after hotel development. And as I said, the big um, one, at, you know, the, I know the developer that was doing the one at Portland that got knocked back this week was the one that got back recently at Apollo Bay. He threw his hands in the air and said, I'm giving up on the Great Ocean Road. I'm going to try and, you know, everyone knows we need more accommodation. I'll go all the way to Portland and see if I can build it there. And it's just been knocked back. So, and I'm not making judgments on whether his development was right or wrong. It's just the point that these things are being knocked back everywhere. And that that's one of the big consequences to our country towns. Um, and then, so now you've got Melbourne investors buying houses in the country to rent on Airbnb in these nice spots because they'll make more renting them for two nights a week than they will renting it to locals. Are we going to have enough um, infrastructure, Richard, to keep up? Like things like, uh, you know, um, NBN type rollout scenarios. I know when as you get out of those bigger kind of towns and even the satellite towns into the right into the regions, um, 
connectivity is an issue. Um, I, I see when, when I drive up to Bendigo occasionally, there's a fair amount of um, reluctance in some of those areas. I think there's an Osnet towers going up for power delivery. Um, yeah. Is that is that you know is there enough is there enough in terms of you know medical care and and it's aged cool. care and, and education uh, in these kind of towns if we start to get this you know permanent influx of of people coming from Melbourne? Yeah, Matt. Another brilliant question, um, and I was doing a bit of this the last two days. So if I look through what, from, from my part of the world, anyway, what I know well, I was on a hospital board for, for 15 years, so I know health fairly well. Generally, our health services are pretty good. But by, you know, for what, for the size they have to look after, there's pretty good protocols around ambulance lifting people out who need it. You know, you're never going to do brain surgery in a country town but you want to make sure you can be triaged and stabilised and looked after. And I think generally that's not too bad. Education is another thing altogether. Um, we have 145 secondary schools in country Victoria and 80% of those schools finish in the bottom 30% of results. Our country educational offer is probably one of the biggest things, apart from not being able to get a house to live in, that lets country Victoria down. If you're a professional in Melbourne, you will gladly move to Ballarat, Bendigo and Geelong. They've got some great choice of private and state schools. But if you want to move beyond that, and I'm talking towns like Mildura, Portland, Colac, Warrnambool, uh, go over in Vansdale, you know, all those next rung of towns. And sadly, their educational offers are well below um, what is proportionate. So, you know, if we're fair income about offering country um, kids the same choices as Melbourne, we shouldn't have 80% of our schools in the bottom 30%. And in fact, the couple of schools that did quite well, and one was in my electorate, you know, there were six kids in year 12. And the principal said to me, well, we did okay because I personally taught them myself. You know, like, <laughs> it were, you know, that's not really comparing apples with apples. But when you when you deal with the, the mid-sized towns of the next rung that will attract businesses and opportunity, that's a real problem. In terms of the physical infrastructures, well, we, we can talk about roads, but we all know what has to be done there. Rail, rail is going up the agenda both at state and federal levels, and that's, that's, that can only be a good thing. Um, you know, we promised uh, creating a Geelong Metro and then uh, shooting out with proper decent trains to, you know, Warnables and um, Shepparton's and all these other places. Um, that's on the cards. Both sides of politics, I think, are generally heading in that direction. Where we haven't got our act together in Victoria and it's lagging terribly behind because um, it's it's sort of the big elephant in the room and that's our, um, our renewable energy infrastructure. Now, let's not have the argument about whether we do or don't want renewable energy or whether we burn coal. That's, that's all argument someone else can have. We're not going to solve that in country Victoria. But what we can solve in country Victoria is how it's done. And we've seen that massive campaign uh, about the Western District transmission line through Ballarat. Yep. But that's just one campaign of many because we're going to need, you know, I don't know how bad your language is allowed to be on this on this podcast, but, you know, we need, we need a shit ton, a shit ton of, um, of this type of infrastructure. Now, this is transforming our communities forever and... One of the things that drives me crazy about this debate is when I sit next to my um, soybean-eating, latte-friendly um, Greens can uh, members in Parliament, you know, they sit there in their concrete jungles and their little trendy inner suburban things, and they just think 
filling the countryside full of wind turbines and solar farms and transmission lines is okay. You know, they don't really see what the problem is. Um, that's not the same vibe you get when you go out into the country. And having just spent two days driving from Bacchus Marsh to Mortlake and, and back again. Speaking of Bacchus Marsh, did you, uh, did you drive through Bacchus Marsh yesterday? No, it was the day before in Bacchus Marsh. Ah, well, yesterday, if you'd driven through, it would have been like uh, Northern Ireland, number of soldiers and police checking. What were they IDs. protesting in Bacchus Marsh? No, they were doing uh, COVID compliance checks. Oh. So, so I went for my lunch, and my lunch took me two kilometres there and back in the car. took me about 15 minutes each way. Oh, right. Because I had to choose my ID. But sorry, that was a segue. Yeah, so so the point on that is that, um, you know, we – we we hear in Melbourne that they're spending you know ninety million dollars to put a level put a train under or above a road so people can get to work two minutes quicker. We've we've got the government currently talking about one hundred and fifty billion. I'll say that again, one hundred and fifty billion to put a train so you can go from one shopping centre to another a little bit quicker and and uh, do some kids after school activities for one hundred and fifty billion. And yet, when country communities say we don't want massive bloody great power lines crisscrossing our countryside at every intersection and we want them underground, everyone says, oh, that's going to cost a billion dollars. That's too much. We can't we can't afford that. Well, I'm not so sure. I think we need to have that conversation and country communities need to go out and look at their favourite view. And, you know, that's the thing about living in the country. We like that bigger horizon. We like to be able to look out. And I know, you know, for me, driving through Western Victoria, it's landmark after landmark is what you appreciate. That's what you call home. You've, you've been overseas and you come back and you see Mount Elephant or you see uh, that Mount Hess or Mount Jellybrand or the Otways in the distance. These are all, you, you know, your symbols of home. Um, might be a bit lost on other people, but these things are rapidly being overrun forever. And... Um, you know, there is a compromise that's going to be had, but it needs. we need to, as country people, ensure we are getting our fair share of value in, in all of this. And ultimately, one of the, the great shames, and people really need to be aware of this, is there is no cleanup strategy for these things. So if you, are, if you believe that in the future there may be other energy sources, whether it's some sort of different version of nuclear or whether it's going to be hydrogen or you know, geothermal, I don't know, other sources that don't require the countryside to have literally thousands of Rialto-sized towers all over them, um, then I want to know that they're going to get cleaned up and put back, uh, the countryside put back to normal again, and that's not being guaranteed either. So there's some pretty big issues there for country people to be mindful of. And I think I think that's, when you look at the, the sort of, you drive around country Victoria, you see more and more, wind turbines and all that kind of stuff the reality is that the general consensus is renewables are a good thing until another solution is, is found but if you go to you go to scotland yeah uh, again if you're looking for somewhere to stay in scotland you can go to my mum's air there's a nice there's a nice stables there i believe renovated stables uh, but if you if you go to scotland over the last 15 years <clears throat> the number of wind turbines which are just popping up everywhere you know scotland is obviously god's country and uh, you know has beautiful views everywhere but there is it does get taken away a bit when you see you know wind turbines across every single literally every single horizon so i think there has to be a sort of middle ground between the environment but also the 
visual environment as well, which I think is yeah. what, what you're saying. Yeah, um, absolutely. And and a guarantee to communities that it will be maintained. I mean, you know, we it's interesting at the moment that one of the meetings I had in the last couple of days was Victoria's first wind farm down at Codrington um, is coming to its end of its natural life, right? Now, I think they said there's 20 or 30-odd turbines there that under um, a new with new technology, so that's now 25-year-old farm or 30-year-old farm, modern technology will have those 30-odd turbines um, built in only five. Five or six would generate the same amount of electricity. That's how, that's how that industry's developed in, yeah. in 30 years. Um, but no one knows who's cleaning up, like what's happening to the guys just walking away? Is it being retrofitted? Is it being pulled down and rebuilt again? All these types of questions... Um, just have no answers to them. And, and you know, for a state that's telling the world we're going to be 100% renewable and we've, we're at 20% odd now and we're going to have to just see an absolute heap more of this stuff, country Victorians, and certainly I'm pushing, we want to know the answers to that. Like, what's it look like? Who's looking after it? Who's going to maintain it? Who's making sure that if no one wants it anymore, it gets cleaned up? And, and that's, the, that's the reality that a lot of this power is going to the city. And and so, but it's reliant on country Victoria to produce that renewable mm. energy. Mm. Any of the carbon sequestration is reliant on the country, whether it's you know forests in the Otways or or farmers sequestering carbon. So it isn't just a decision that can be made from you know the city centric voters. It has to be made by by country people as well. Absolutely. So, so over the last year or so, we've had various various sort of issues. One of the big issues with COVID at the moment is, in an agricultural point of view, and it's probably the only real negative other than labour, is the abattoirs at the moment. And and Matt, you can probably give a bit of an update, but we have seen more and more abattoirs shutting down. But from a Victorian point of view, we've seen what is the capacity? It's now 80% of the capacity? Yeah, in the metro abattoirs, it's been used to work. I mean, they already had workforce issues just because of the, the lack of, of offshore workers that, that are sometimes um, taking up that surge capacity when they go through the, the busiest time of the year, which for Victoria is coming into this uh, spring flush of, of lambs that are about to hit us. Um, they use a lot more kind of migrant workers for that, but they're not around this year. But the other issue now is that we've got the inner, inner, inner kind of suburban Melbourne abattoirs or the metropolitan abattoirs have this workforce restriction overlaid on top as well. And actually just in the last week, we've seen uh, for, cattle, for cattle slaughter last week, it was the lowest weekly figure in, in Victoria for the whole of the year since the start of the year and, and lamb turned south as well, which was fairly uncommon. Um, you know, and, and so it's looking like it is causing a, the beginnings of a bottleneck, which we spoke to Patrick Hutchinson from from Amic a few a few podcasts back and he had concerns around workforce and about this surprise restriction that was put on and that, that, uh, the and, that was, and that was one of the biggest concerns wasn't it the actual the lack of communications with the industry mm. in that changes would occur on a would be announced at Saturday at half without, past 10 without, for, consult- for, yeah, without for, consultation for, for a 1pm start which is a yeah. real, real difficult are, are you like in, in your area you've got quite a few abattoirs or meatworks. Colac was one of the ones that got impacted. Yeah, we had the big impact uh, last year. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the local meatwork, the uh, local abattoir, uh, ALC, worked very closely with the local health authorities. 
and they did quite. They did a very good job, considering that you know, seven hundred odd guys at that place. Um, they brought it all under control pretty quickly. But look, the meat industry at the processing level is dominated by migrant workforce. Um, it's you know some of the issues which it, it's it's just that you're dealing with people who are multi, large households, um, minimal English skills at times. I live a bit hand to mouth. You know, a lot of these guys will be sending a good half of their income back to their families overseas. So even though they're on good incomes, they've, you know, not got a lot left for themselves. So, you know, they became quite complicated workforces to deal with when you've got to try and track everyone down where they've been staying, who they've been staying with, who they've been, you know, um, depend to ask the questions to what answer you get, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, they have their complications that way, but they're a vital industry generally um, across, you know, regional Victoria and certainly southwest Victoria. But it raises the more general question after what we experienced last year and then again what the government's done to the industry at the moment is that, you know, I am certainly in the camp that the whole COVID approach needs to be rethought. And um, we've seen today, you know, close on 1,500 cases, which if you do a per capita with us in New South Wales, well, I think we've now beaten New South Wales per capita in terms of case numbers. The government, of course, loves to blame things, so they're blaming the football final um, last week. Poor old Melbourne supporters. They only forget to go to the snow, and now they're being blamed for, um, you know, the outbreak of COVID again. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the rest of the world has learnt to... Um, start living with this and getting on with it. You know, workplaces, I think COVID responsibility and COVID response, rather than this big, flat, big, flat approach of, right, we've had a problem in the meatworks here, so we're just going to treat all meatworks the same, shut everybody down. And the simple analogy is every time we've had an outbreak in a Woolies, we don't shut all the supermarkets down. And, you know, we have an outbreak at a school, we shut all the schools. We have an outbreak... Out of meatworks, we shut all the meatworks. We have an outbreak on a building site, we shut all the building sites. Hang on, poor old, uh, not poor old, lucky old Mr. Coles and Mr. Woolies and Mr. Mr. Aldi, they escape all this. They haven't had a restriction put on them. I'll tell you what, I'd have loved to have been them for the last two years. Unrestricted, uncompetitive, endless trade, and no one can go anywhere else. You, you know, people are almost getting married in supermarkets these days. Um, so it's the only place you can meet your friends now. That's right. And, you know, and how ridiculous is that? You know, this thing's so wickedly virus, central, dangerous, wicked, clever, running around, killing us all, and yet it doesn't happen at a supermarket for some bizarre reason. Um, so I'm of the view that, you know, we've all lived with it long enough. We know what keeps us safe. We know vaccine helps. We know wearing a mask helps. We know keeping a bit of social distance. If you get an outbreak in your business, whether it's a meat works, a funeral director, a supermarket, whatever, you just deal with it. At the time, it's not, it's not worthy of bringing the whole world to a crashing halt and, and causing the pain and misery that it does. And quite frankly, visiting Patsy's um, dress boutique with three little old ladies toddling in there to buy themselves a dress, quite frankly, that should be able to be done safely. I can't see how shutting them down um, is keeping the world that much safer when the same three old ducks can go, uh, go and natter all day long over the tomatoes and bananas at Woolies and with gay abandon, and no one takes any notice of that. It's just, it's crazy. I'm considering that the, the, the government has, you know, appeared to have walked away from the, the idea of, uh, of, of going elimination COVID negative all the way through there. They are now talking the language of having to deal with it. 
and having to manage it, like you're saying. But which is but what the rest of the world has done. Exactly, yeah. but but they're yet to really, um, you know, maybe is it the is it the embarrassment of, you know, uh, coming late to the party with that realization that's making them still cling to what you know this kind of strategy of locking everything down still, um, you know, or is it uh, you know something else? Well, my view is it's something else, and it's called Premier Andrews, and that bloke seriously. Um, uh, you know, I'm allowed to say this because I'm opposition. He is Freddie Friendless. That man, that man does not take a back step. When he, he, for him, black is white, white is black. He is the keeper of all knowledge and all understanding. Um, and he just will not backtrack at all. Like I was absolutely amazed with the hoo-ha with the building industry and his response, having been completely silent on the dangers of construction, comes out at seven o'clock the night of that thing and says, I'll teach you buggers a lesson. You're all shut down for the next two weeks. He loves to blame, loves to just use his iron fist. And and he he he, he must be secretly so annoyed he's had to give up on his zero COVID. We'll all, never forget his, his press conference for one day where he said he's beaten Delta twice, the only person in the whole world to beat Delta twice. And the next day we had five cases and, and now we've beaten New South Wales with his hard and fast lockdowns. So it, it's... It's a completely rational proposition for a leader like him to have got to this point and said, look, hard and fast lockdowns worked last year. It was a different case. We didn't know what we were doing. We now know I've changed my view. I think we're now going to get on the horse and we're going to start opening up. We're going to make people more responsible for themselves. You all know how to do it. I, you know, As a government, we're going to support you. And instead, he's just coming out day after day. Oh, you all watch the football at a mate's house. In brackets, I have no mates, so I couldn't have gone to anyone's house anyway. Um, I'm jealous, brackets, close brackets. Um, so he <laughs> he has that view of the world and and he can't see past it. And it's very disappointing. Gladys has, you know, we all love Gladys, or I love Gladys last year. Then she got all a bit sort of bossy and started copying Dan and then realised that Dan was completely on the wrong track and she's jumped back off the Dan horse and she's back on her own horse, which is saying, look at it at a localised level, we need to get people back to work. She's got all the construction workers back to work um, with vaccine or without. She's got a plan for schools. And December 1, you're all back looking after yourselves just as you should. You know, a clear vision. This joker in Victoria, oh, no, you know, I'm not going to guarantee anything and we'll have to wait and see what happens. We'll have to see if you get vaccinated. We'll have to see if you're behaving yourself. have to make sure you're not visiting your mother. You know, he's nuts. He's nuts. We do have a clear road plan, though. Clear road plan. It, mate, it's a Melways put through a shredder. That's as clear as his road map is. It's hopeless. You know, there is not a family in Victoria that has a fridge in the kitchen big enough to figure out when the bloody kids are going back to school. I'm trying to work it out now. It's like Tuesdays when the moon's at half mast, you can have one kid go to school for two hours and on Thursday, the fifth for one hour, another kid can go. And then when this kid's finished an exam, then the others can go. It's nuts. But if we behave ourselves, Richard, we might we might be allowed to have our have our family around for Christmas if we don't have too big a family. Yeah, well, if you get vaccinated, behave yourself, do as he says, obey everything he says, don't protest, don't complain, um, pay your union dues. You might be able to have 30 people on uh, on at Christmas. I mean, that's just insane, honestly. And, and this is the sort of thing I don't get with these roadmaps and whatnot. It's like 
you can have 50 people in your house or 30 people in your house. I don't even know 30 people. Or you could, or you can do, you can do two hours of exercise a day. That's because you're a I'm, stodgy Scot instead of a wild Irishman like me. You see, you haven't got. It's, it's every time they say, "Oh, you can go out and do an hour's exercise." I'm not doing a bloody hour of exercise every day. You can't force me. Well, the one I love is before we went into this lockdown 49 that we're in now. Um, you couldn't visit your mum for Mother's Day or go around and see her for a 70th birthday, but 30 of your mates could go to a brothel and shag yourself senseless all day and all night, and that was perfectly legal. I mean, you know, I think it's hilarious the way they come up with some of these rules. I don't think you'd want to go and meet your mum in a brothel, though. No, you could, but you could meet someone. <laughs> well, as someone said... You could meet somebody else's mum. Else's mum, that's right. <laughs> but I suppose, and I, I guess my, my big thing with the COVID thing is still international travel. Yes. Because to for me... To, the, to get to that great little uh, renovated stables in Scotland... Well, that, and that's the thing, like my family is, apart from my wife and, and child, my family is all overseas. Yeah. And, and, and that's what we want is to get the world back to some form of normality so you can take trips. Yeah. Or, or in reality, most of the time my family comes over here and then spends their money in your district, actually. See, Andrew, my view is that, um, you know, I'll, I'll be forgiving of the government for last year's behaviour. And, and actions because we didn't know. But we now know what keeps you safe, who's most affected, what the problems are, right? And we know that, you know, m most people look at it and know there's very, very strong case that you'll be okay. And that's the way most people are looking at it. They're not looking at the 0.5% of people that have a problem. And so the government really needs to move the onus back onto us as individuals. If you're worried about your own health, if you're vulnerable, if you've got health concerns, you're the one that should be staying home and being, you know, taking care of yourself and taking all the avoidance measures. For the rest of us, uh, we're intelligent enough to make our own decisions. If you want to go and visit your family, you can make the choice whether you and the, your wife and kids are, are happy to get on a plane and travel through other jurisdictions and take the punt. We do that all the time in life. You know, I can drive to Melbourne at 40 k's an hour and there's very little chance I'll be killed in a fatal car accident. But I choose to drive at 100 k's an hour knowing full well that if I have a head-on collision, it'll be a lot worse than if I was at 40 k's. But I make that considered decision, taking into account the, the quality of my car and, and my driving skills and all those other things. And, you know, there should be no reason why we're not allowed to take the same risk uh, measurements and risk judgments ourselves with COVID now that we know so much more about it. You know, last year we knew less and this year we know more about how this is all playing out. Um, something that was slow to be discussed was the mental health impact of the lockdowns on people. Um, I've certainly got a few friends in Melbourne that I, I know struggle, uh, you know, through the, the extended lockdowns they've had in, in suburban parts there, um, that they're struggling with um, this, this, this most, most recent one. Um, and I think Andrew just said that it was earlier this week, we saw some stats come out of um, Mary O'Brien's group, that are you bogged mate, the country, um, country kind of regional uh, mental health program that she runs there with regards to suicide. And I think it was a stat, something like 18.6 in every 100,000 or something. It's, it's four, four, four times the number of suicides compared to road fatalities. Yeah, yeah, yeah at, at, at currently, right? And so, and there's now, then now they're starting to talk about, you know, because of the length of these lockdowns and the severity what's the mental health implications moving forwards for people? And you're balancing that off against the, the COVID health implications. So 
you know, are they are they needing to have a reassessment of what what are the risks of this? It's, it's not just the virus risks and 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 all that that entails. It's also the the, the mental health lockdown risks. Do you know? Here's another statistic. You know, as you said, we've been late to talking about mental health, but it's absolutely a real problem. And and I've got kids in last years of school, and you talk to any other parent. My own experience as well. You know, kids are really struggling with. Um, you know, for for the kids in year eleven and twelve, it's the last two years of their. You know, what's supposed to be the best years of your life, and they haven't had it at all. So you know, they're pretty on tender hooks. Those guys. But the other one, um, kids safe. Many of your listeners will be familiar with it. So it's a national program that looks to keep kids safe. The age ran a bit of a story, but I had a briefing with them the other day. Last year in lockdown two, and the stats haven't come out yet for this year, so we can't comment on this year. But last year between July and December, 25 children under the age of 14, between basically six months and 14, died at home through preventable accidents so just as a scale normally in a period like that it would be about 10 kids and it's normally about 17 for the whole year 25 died in that six months and essentially by coroner and others determining um, kids at home not being supervised properly change circumstances so this is not a criticism of parents or anything like that but these are kids determined that would not have died had they probably been at school or in childcare where they was, normally would have been. And a whole raft of other tragic circumstances conspired to make it happen. But, you know, when we look at it and there's been not one kid in that age bracket die of COVID and it's all been too risky and terrible and dangerous for them to be anywhere else but at home, and yet that's another cost. So, we, you know, we've got the suicide cost, we've got the kids' safe cost. I mean, another bizarre one's the road toll. I haven't seen the the figures so far for this year, but last year's road toll was higher, 35% less traffic on the road, and the road toll was higher than the previous two years. Now, um, um, you know, we'll comment on on the fact that it was between 25-year-old and 45-year-old men were well above their stat. Now, you can draw your own conclusions. I'm not saying what, what that means. But, you know, there are lots of other things that cause people deaths that any rational person, when everyone's supposed to be locked up and safe at home, should not be increasing. And I think you've got to... And that's, and that's actually one of, one of the stats that, that our contact sort of mentions is that out of those road fatalities, a large percentage of them are questionable and potentially also suicides, especially in country areas. Yeah, well, on the suicide thing, when it's deemed a suicide they take it out of the car road facility so um so you know when you know so there's some sort of relatively um infamous or famous uh single vehicle accidents that they actually get taken out of the stats so that's what's even more concerning you know how do you have a situation where um 35 less activity on our roads but our road tolls higher than it was in 2018 i mean that doesn't doesn't you've got to ask questions don't you doesn't the government the government has an obligation to have some reasoning as to how on earth that could happen. Everyone's forgotten how to drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, or people are forced into doing other things that they wouldn't normally do. Well, so. Richard, we uh, we know you've got another meeting coming up, and uh, that's been a really interesting uh, conversation around around your neck of the woods. 
and and around what is happening with with COVID with the businesses, what is happening with the the blow-ins coming in from Melbourne, uh, what is happening with Daniel Andrews and his and his road plan for the uh, exit of uh, us from COVID at some point in time, undeterminate or when that will be. So I just want to say thanks for thanks for coming along, Richard. Really, no worries. Really enjoyed your candor, and uh, <laughs> always good to have a have a chat. No worries, Andrew. Look, and look, the, if I can say my final message is for those of us lucky enough to live in the regions, I think we live in the best part of the world still. There's a huge amount of optimism out there. There's a lot to look forward to. And certainly what I want to be able to do is help understand and continue to advocate for those little things. And I think they're quite often only little things that we need to tweak, better focus on education, a better focus on planning, a better focus on, on some of the key infrastructure that just makes the decision for people to live, work, play and enjoy their life in the regions an even better decision. And, um, you know, we are we consistently prove to be a bit of a powerhouse in Victoria and as, as many of the other regions are when they're firing. And I'm secretly hoping for a, I'm happy for it to be fairly wet and cool up till Christmas, but I'm secretly hanging out for a hot January. Um, and by that time, you know, the worst of the fire, you know, fire risk should be over. We can sail through another half decent year in Victoria. It sounds good, Richard. It's, um, it's always a pleasure to have on. Uh, a straight shooter and a, and a, and a you know, direct speaker like yourself. And it's even more of a pleasure when it's coming from a politician. Sometimes you get a few that don't speak as candidly. So it was excellent uh, to have a chat. And thanks for your time, um, listeners. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, everyone see you when you've got nothing on. <laughs> Ciao for now.